0: Hello everyone and welcome to Unorthodoxy. My name is Duncan Rayburn and I'm briefly interrupting my series on Exodus to play you a recording of a talk that I gave on the centrality of love. Those of you who are familiar with my podcast will hear echoes of some ideas that I've already put forward on this podcast uh, back in episode 44. But there is some stuff in this talk that is new and I think potentially helpful. I will be back with more on Exodus soon enough. Uh, until next time, cheers.
1: So hello everyone, I'm
0: Duncan. The topic for, for my talk is the centrality of love. Interestingly enough, two, two weeks ago, an article of mine, which I wrote four years ago, was published. with the, I think probably my favorite title I've given to any article, Love in the Time of the Zombie Contagion. It's there in, a, in an academic journal, so you can you can check that out. Uh, the journal is Studies in the Fantastic. So, check that out. I do I do a kind of uh, reading of World War Z uh, through the through the philosophies of Simone Weil and René Girard. Yeah, that'll stun anyone. <laughs> so. Um, obviously, the topic of love is something that I, I like to come back to every now and then. Obviously, it's at the center of Christian faith and ethics, and, and apparently, it makes the world go round. And by the end of this talk, you should be able to take that sentence literally. Love does make the world go round. But one of the things that, that has occurred to me, I've, I've, I've witnessed recently a lot of my friends going through a lot of relational turmoil. And I've started to see a connection between their understanding of love and the struggles that they have in relationships. And so I wondered if, if most of their struggles aren't in some ways owed to misunderstanding what love is. And so really that's going to be the main focus of my talk, just defining love. That may be either overly ambitious or a remarkably <laughs> stupid aim, but I hope it is in some way edifying to you. My feeling is that if we know what love is, we'll have a better uh, understanding of how to recognize love, what does it look like in life. We might even be able to avoid various ideological traps, because I think one of the, the best critiques of ideology is love itself. Uh, it, it steps away from ideological boundaries. Um, and I think we'd hopefully be able to love better if we knew what love is. So. As I said, I'm going to define what love is, and then just because I like putting small things into my talks, I thought to also explain how love might uh, inform how we understand the question of the meaning of life. Let's see how we go. When when you look at how love is usually defined in culture, like if you were to sort of just generally ask people, and I've done obviously I've done some research on this, one of the strongest connections is between love and emotion. The top dictionary definition, generally speaking, if you look at various dictionaries, the top definition is that love is a strong feeling of affection. Feeling of affection, which is another feeling. So there's this connection between love and emotion. But for more fun, you can check out the Urban Dictionary. What they do is they invite people to submit definitions of, of words. The top definition that gets voted on is that love is nature's way of tricking people into reproducing. The top definition of love is incredibly cynical, uh, which I find interesting. And I wonder if it's popular because it's funny or because people think it's true. I'm not sure. The second one on the list is love is the most spectacular, indescribable, deep, euphoric feeling for someone. Um, And then, actually, the... Verse from uh, one Corinthians thirteen, which, oh well, not the verse, the passage from one Corinthians thirteen um, that Paul writes, where Paul writes about love. That is actually, I think, that's number four on the list. And then number five is love is giving someone the power to destroy you, and trusting them not to. <laughs> Why dictionary definitions are interesting is that they, they pro- provide some sense of what is popularly accepted, or like what com- what is commonly accepted about a thing. Dictionary definitions are, as I wish my students would learn, not philosophically or theologically or existentially sophisticated. They're useful for gauging what generally is thought about a, a, a word's meaning, but not very accurate if you want to get into some depth. So let, let's like start clearing away the shallowness of that definition by stating as clearly as possible, love is not an emotion. It's not how you feel about someone or something. I want to read you a passage from Carla McLaren's book, The Language of Emotions. Carla McLaren is a psychotherapist. Very, She's got a brilliant examination of, of emotion, in, quite amazing um, in her description of emotions. But this is what she says. Um, when an emotion is healthy, it arises only when it is needed. It shifts and changes in response to its environment, and it recedes willingly once it has addressed an issue. When love is healthy, it does none of these things. If emotions repeat themselves endlessly or appear with the same exact intensity over and over again, then something is wrong. Yet, real love is a steadfast promise that repeats itself endlessly through life and beyond death. Love does not increase or decrease in response to its environment, and it does not change with the changing winds. Love is not an emotion. It doesn't behave the way emotions do. Real love is in a category of its own. I think that's really nicely put, because it suggests that love is in fact something transcendent. It goes beyond emotional fluctuations. This is very helpful if you want to think theologically about God is love. That, that verse in 1 John 4, verse 8. Because <laughs> if you think of God as love in terms of emotion, you're you're dealing with pure instability. And it's not that uh, emotions are important, but they have to be supported by something deep I think. Again, it's not to dismiss feelings. Feelings are vital, but they are, as, as Susan David, the psychologist, says, feelings are data, not directions. And I would say that love is a direction. Feelings happen, but they don't, and they're, they're signals of something going on, but they do not tell you how you must act. I, I think this is good news for, for most people, because if you have the feeling that you hate someone and want to kill them, you don't have to act on that. That's good news for the person you wanted to kill, I think. So love is a direction. So the way, the better way to think about love is to start with one of my favorite quotes from Thomas Aquinas, which is not about love directly, but it is, I think, at the center of what love is. He says, being as such is good. Being, that's existence. Okay, so it's us, it's tables and chairs and coffee cups and things, the world, universe, it's extended. Being as such is good. And Thomas Aquinas says being as such is good because being is given and sustained by God, who is the highest good. So, and we know, I've just mentioned, God is love. And so with this in mind, we can understand that love is that which affirms the goodness of being. That's a very simple definition, and everything I say from here afterwards is Rooted in that very simple definition. It's kind of nice that, as I said that, a few people took out notebooks. That's cool. Um, Love is that which affirms the goodness of being. I also wanted to be able to say it in a way that's simple enough that it is memorable. That you can take it home and ponder it. Because I think it has really transformed the way I think about um, love and living in the world. So, obviously, Jesus places the, this, the double love of God and neighbor at the center of his entire metaphysical vision. He, he says that um, you should love, love your neighbor as yourself, and you should love God. And these things, as St. Augustine points out, these are the same thing. What, what has tended to happen in, specifically in the, the post-enlightenment tradition and in a lot of Protestant theology is that love of God is one thing, and love of neighbor is something else. And in the earliest Christian traditions, um, this was never, uh, they were never separated. It's the same thing. To love your neighbor as yourself means to affirm the presence and goodness and potential for greater goodness in created being. Jesus didn't say that exactly because it's more complicated, but I think it's a nice way of thinking it. So it's affirming the presence of, and potential goodness, presence of goodness, and the potential goodness in every created being. That's that's to love the neighbor. The neighbor is a symbol for anything that is other, to, other from you, like different from yourself. Um, to love God means to affirm that the goodness of created being points beyond itself to the highest good, who is God. Um, so it's basically, if you want to truncate that, that would be to affirm the highest good. That's... And it's the same thing. You cannot affirm the highest good, i.e. God, without affirming the goodness of created being. Uh, You can't go to church and like worship and then go home and kick your dog and pretend that you're loving God. That doesn't work. One way to understand how this works is to actually look at the first, is to, well, look at how God is first presented in the Bible as creator. So love and creativity are the same thing. Um, it is in the very nature of love to create. Creative people know this. Like, you just want to make stuff, and it's, it's an act of love to make things. And the way that Genesis frames this is it says, God, uh, God says, let there be light. This, this is understood, actually, um, by St. Augustine, and I think it's a helpful way of looking at it, as, as a perpetual ongoing act. We tend to think of creation as something that happened once upon a time. So we, we've got a very deist mindset in our culture. So God, once upon a time, created the world, and then he sort of went off and played chess with the devil. And, and occasionally shows up to perform miracles like giving you parking spaces when you ask for one.
2: <laughs> and,
0: and this is so fundamentally wrong, it, and it, it's t- it presents a very warped picture of reality. Saint Augustine's picture and he says this is what is implied in the Genesis text is that God creates at every moment you are given your own being and sustained in being right now every like space within a part every particle in your body is put into place and all the little particles are held together right now by God he could hypothetically although I'm not a voluntarist he could say call you into being now, and then in three gazillion years, although God is outside of time, call you into being again, and you wouldn't even know that there is a gap between, which is kind of a cool conceptual exercise to to explore. But the idea is that love sustains being, and it affirms it, because that's what love does. It affirms the goodness of being. Uh, Joseph Pieper, who I'm drawing quite a lot from, he's a wonderful philosopher and theologian, he says love is... a Above all, what makes be? It makes things be. cool. To call things into existence is to bring them into the light. I mean, that's part of what is implied in Genesis. Let there be light. It is to bring things into, into the light. There's an immediate link with, between love and knowing things. So love is not just something that applies to ethics. It applies to metaphysics, epistemology, ontology, uh, all the rest. It is an act of love to work because you affirm the being of yourself and your workspace when you work. So if you work in an organization that you hate, consider the fact that your actions show that you love the organization. Something to think about. Okay, so some basic metaphysics. God is the uncreated. He calls all created things into existence. Um, The speaker last week suggested on some level, in some very subtle way, that, that all things are equally real. And this is not true uh, from a metaphysical perspective. We are less real than God. God is actually the ultimately real, and our reality is entirely secondary and dependent uh, upon God. So this means that there are, already in, there are already two potentialities. Things can either move towards the fullness of their being, Or they can move away from the fullness of their being towards non-being, towards the non-existence out of which they were called. This has very interesting implications for understanding how evil arises, because it, it tells us that evil is primarily that which denigrates being, that which moves against love. Basically, evil would be that which works against the primary affirmation of being, which is actually God is the one who is... Who primarily works um, to affirm being. So to work against being is to denigrate ultimately God. Which is why I think in, in a lot of the Christian tradition, the worst sin, and there are worse sins. I grew up in a church where I was taught that uh, every sin is equally bad. And I think that's a form of stupidity to think that. But um, the worst sin would be murder—somewhere uh, between, and symbolically speaking as well, but somewhere between murder and suicide. Uh, the, com- the Columbine shootings would, would have been a kind of key example of that, where it's it's hatred towards the being of others and towards the self. It's both. Being itself should not exist in the mind of someone who, who is filled with non-love, whatever that is, um, which is why I, I kind of like uh, Cornelius Platinga's definition of sin. He says, Sin is culpable violation of shalom. If love is the affirmation of being, it is also a protest against death and non-existence. Um, So the lover is actually someone who refuses to accept the possibility of the universe without the beloved. That's kind of cool to think about if you think about the statement that God loves us. He refuses to accept the possibility of the universe without us. We, we are dependent upon God for our existence. And that's actually what the, the idea of eternity really means. It's, uh, to be loved in, in sort of a, even a beyond time kind of thing. So to be loved is actually to, to know that, to be treated as if you're irreplaceable. This is one of the things that I, I think happens, a lot of relationships go horribly wrong when people are not treated as if they are irreplaceable. To be loved and to feel loved is to know the primary truth of your existence, because you are someone who exists in and through, and as love. What are you made out of? Love. That's every particle in your body is actually made out of love. I actually wonder if we would not walk through the world differently if we had at every moment a realization that we are, in fact, made out of love. I don't know, I think it would change quite a lot in the world. So for this reason, I think love is also a response and a responsibility. Love is an attunement to the needs of the other. And in fact, working from existing wholeness towards greater potential wholeness is part of the deal. It's like looking at what is going on and and what we're faced with in the world and going, how can this move towards greater potential wholeness? How can or the potential wholeness within the thing that I'm faced with, or within the person I'm faced with, how can I encourage that to increase? Um, So, and that's actually, by the way, kind of helpful to keep in mind uh, when thinking about the question of the meaning of life, which I will get to. So if love is the affirmation of the goodness of creation as an expression of the highest good, love is also, in a sense, divisive and discerning. This is, this is where uh, the Christian conception of love is quite different from the Buddhist conception of love. And who better to talk about this than Chesterton? He says, love desires personality. Therefore, love desires division. It is the instinct of Christianity to be glad that God has broken the universe into little pieces, because they are living pieces. It is her, her instinct to say, little children love one another, rather than to tell one large person to love himself. This is the intellectual abyss between Buddhism and Christianity, that for the Buddhist or theosophist, personality is the fall of man. For the Christian, it is the purpose of God, the whole point of his cosmic idea. The world soul of the theosophist asks a man to love only in order that man may throw himself into it, dissolve in a way, but the divine center of Christianity actually threw man out in order that he might love it. To love someone else, they have to not be you. If, if you're just loving someone else because you're all part of pure oneness, well, that's just a kind of very glorified version of philosophical narcissism. Aristotle says that love is what wishes the good for the other. This is probably one of the most common uh, understandings of love. But that is not putting it strong enough. You can actually wish others well, but do nothing about it. So, the idea is to actively take part in making sure that the goodness that you wish for the other actually comes about. That's a complicated thing because sometimes that means, in fact, stepping away. Sometimes, overly, like being overly concerned and overly interfering with someone else's life, is a way to not love them, which is paradoxical, but I think worth uh, considering. So, in a way, it's very helpful to remember that love is always a verb. It's, it's a noun. It's a thing, but to affirm being means to actually take steps to affirm uh, being and its goodness. And and by the way, action, loving action also takes place through through speech. Speech is itself an action uh, because you change you change things through speech, which is I think part of the message of of uh, the book of John that articulates this idea that God is the logos, the word. Speech, in fact. Uh, is part of the creative act. And then the last um, kind of idea on love would be that love is something that can withstand boredom. And I think this is very important given the Hollywood uh, stress on love, love as a very thrilling, exciting thing all the time. Love can withstand the boredom. It can actually stick around and say, well, I'm going to affirm the goodness of this being and their potential goodness at every moment—that's that's my job, and so it's a commitment. It's uh, and I think to, to to remove fidelity from love. I mean, you would, you probably can already see how all of these things would connect. If you look at any of the virtues, courage, or you know temperance, all of these things actually are in some sense connected uh, to love. With all of that in mind, I thought. Uh, it's a good point to kind of look at the meaning of life, uh, at least how the meaning of love might, in, might help to answer the question of the meaning of life. Um, <clears throat> that is obviously a massive question, something that I'm, I'm, I'm actually looking at in a lot of detail in my own thinking. Um, but very simply, the question of the meaning of life is the question of what life is for. Very simple. It's the same question as why am I here or what am I meant to do with my life? It's the same question, essentially. And what I've discovered is it cannot be answered in strictly universal terms. There are principles that, that can be applied, but every single person has specific gifts and specific um, sort of preferences. Those are going to come into play in the way that they navigate the, the question of the meaning of life. But at its heart, the question of the meaning of life Regards, at least for, for Christianity, but I think in terms of this idea of love that I presented, it is a question of how to love. That's, the, that's the, center, the center of the thing. The Christian claim would be that we are in fact here to love. We are here to attune ourselves to and to affirm goodness in being and then ultimately, ultimately the highest good, which is God. And so the meaning of life actually emerges as we respond to every situation in terms of this attunement. At every moment, the world presents itself to us in accordance with our love. This is something I find amazing. What we love shapes us. In fact, um, James <coughs> K. A. Smith has got a book called "You Are What You Love." That's actually pretty good. If you want to know what you are, you are what you love. That is your 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 nature. We are always dependent on the environment. We are dependent on our jobs. I think this is why uh, the the top of the list of party questions is, what do you do? Because it is a, it provides profound insight into a person's life. Unfortunately, a lot of people do things that they do not love. Um, so there, there can be uh, obviously a conflict there. The world presents itself to us in accordance with our love, in accordance with the way that we attend to the goodness of being. That's how it's going to show itself uh, towards us. I've spoken about phenomenology before, but it's basically how does the world shine forth? Well, it shines forth according to the way that we, we love. Uh, we, yeah, we love. We attune ourselves to the process <laughs> of being. And our task then is to actualize the potentialities that we encounter in keeping with our unique being uh, and obviously our capacities and gifts. So we each have a unique way of responding to that question. But if something presents itself to you, a difficult problem at work or at home, whatever it is that you're dealing with, and you you ask that question: How can I act or speak in a way that moves whatever goodness I perceive in this situation towards greater goodness? That's really that's really at least a, a pretty significant way to answer the question of the meaning of life. And if you find yourself un not committing along those lines, you will find life becoming rather kind of flat, I think. And this is going to obviously play out in a million ways, but the center of the Christian life remains this one question. How can we love well in accordance with the fact that God is love? What I thought to do is to take some of the philosophy that I've grappled with, which is mostly rooted in Thomas Aquinas um, and the Catholic tradition, and I thought to interpret... 1 Corinthians 13, and then read it back to you in, in a way that it should sound new, because it is. No one has written it exactly like this before, but you should hear some sort of resonances with familiarity. Actually, on the meaning of life, um, the, oh, a good way to define or understand what the meaning of life is, it's that which resonates with your true essence helpful way to go. Anyway, here's Paul and me doing a sort of tag team, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak the languages of people and angels, but do have no love, my words will not persuade beings to make real their fullest potential for goodness, but will instead produce meaningless noise. If I have prophetic powers and deep understanding, and if my faith is potent enough to relocate mountains, but do not have love, I am an echo of non-being itself. If I give away all all that I am and have, but do not have love, nothing will be gained, either by me or anyone else. Love patiently and kindly attunes itself to the goodness of being. It does not seek to degrade my own being through envy or to degrade the being of others by means of arrogance or rudeness. Pause. It's interesting that you can actually now look at virtues and vices in terms of what elevates being towards higher good or denigrates being away from that, away from the goodness of being. Uh, it does not insist on its own way, but takes the communion of all beings with God's absolute being into account and acts in accordance with what is best for all beings within the world. Love is not irritable or resentful, and it does not rejoice in untruth and wrongdoing. Love sustains truth-telling. It sustains the universe, trusts, hopes, and endures. Love does not end, but transcends all finite being even while it calls finite being towards its fullness. Everything else will fade away. Languages, knowledge, prophecies, but not love. Love perfects all things and allows the partial to pass away. Let me pause there too. If you are faced with reality and there is potential in everything, there are always multiple potentials, potentialities. You get to choose which potentialities to make actual. So that's Basically, the idea there. We know incompletely now, of course, but illumination grows as we grow in love. Faith, hope, and love abide, all three, but love is the greatest of these. There you go. So, thoughts. But
3: love is an act of the will. It is a decision.
0: Yeah, okay. Love is an act of the will. It is a decision.
1: I decide.
0: Yeah, I think... I think that's true in some sense. Um, what would be interesting? One way to understand love is that love is about the will. I'm a little wary of of bringing will and love too closely together, as in because it links to the voluntarist tradition in, or like tradition stream in some theological thinking, which basically says God can will to change anything He wants. He can make what is good bad, and He can make what is bad good. And actually, so not not like transform the bad into something good. That's not what it says. It says he can call something that is ontologically bad good. So will can, to some extent, manipulate. So I would say that love is an act of the will, as long as it is subordinate to the affirmation of being, to attunement and to the affirmation of being. So yes, I think what is helpful about that is Often in existential terms, if we're faced with a difficult situation and we do not want to do the loving thing, it is helpful to go, well, I have a choice in this, but in that we're imitating Christ. We're imitating God's love for, for the world. And, and so it's like it's more to rely on God's being than on our willpower in, in a sense. Um, that probably muddies it more than clarifies it, but something along those lines. The affirmation of being, been through uh, bringing up a teenager, and, and you often
3: don't affirm it to be because you need to set boundaries, and my teenager wanted to overtake all, all the time.
0: And, and you- I've heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> that apparently so happens to, to say, some teenagers. To, and,
3: and, and it feels very unaffirming to him. You know, and um, so you sometimes have to say, no, you can
0: do any loops you want, you can make the best speech. The answer is still no. And I'll tell you why. And, you know, so, so there's a lot of... Things. You affirm the being of, of... So, I mean, that's a complicated <coughs> thing. And that's what I, I kind of like about this. It doesn't actually necessarily simplify um, our, our actual engagements in the world. To affirm the being of the person or the teenager in, the, in question is to wish the good for them. And if they are doing something to mess up, then your affirmation of their being is to expect something more from them. However, the typical problem with managing teenagers in in a lot of society is to over control. And of course, um, if you look at, actually let's look at this through the lens of mimetic theory. Mimetic theory, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's the idea that all desire is copied. Every single desire that you have is copied. So, I'm going to use this with a, a example with my little girl. Her cousin sees her playing with a toy. She wants the toy. So, why? Because my little girl is playing with the toy. And it's amazing, like, Isla can actually leave the toy, and then Isla might get another toy, and then her cousin will go, oh, now I want that toy. And it's just, and that actually, if you want to understand all conflict, you have to find the center point at which they all connect. Even Hobbes talked about this in, in his political theory. So it's like, it, it expands to a lot of things. The danger with managing the desires of, of said lazy te- teenager, I'm, I'm assuming things I'm not like, but it's it's sometimes you set up a boundary and by doing that, you actually become a rival, which is exactly what fighting over the same toy is. It's The toy in this case is dominance over the situation. And unfortunately, t- teenagers are kind of geared to develop dominance. That's one way, especially teenage boys. So there's a, a tendency to, to basically figure out who is more dominant. And then the question becomes, what is the highest affirmation of the being of this entire situation? And sometimes, with I've, I've, I know of parents who've done this, where they say to their teenagers, have what you want, like God does in Romans 1. Have what you want. And they get severely beaten up by their own mistakes. But then they come back and say, okay, I understand that you, your boundary was the right one. So it's, but, it, I mean, it is a complicated thing. At all times, though, you are still affirming their highest good. And I think every parent wants that. And how you negotiate that, that's, that's complicated. It's an art. It's an art. And, it, yeah. and one of the things that I found about parenting that I think is probably the most tricky thing, slightly varying from the topic, is that it, at every moment you are not just making a choice between a good thing and a bad thing. Often it's a balancing act between this good thing and this good thing, and it's like, how do we, how do we make sure that we don't <laughs> overcompensate or tilt on the other side, fall over the wrong side of the horse,
1: that kind of thing. So, yeah, anyway. right. You speak here on love, but I, um, I find that what you're actually saying is, is that he's using that one thing about the English language, which is we actually don't express very well the word love. Whereas one, if you look at the Greek, there's five different terms. Are you using all five terms, or are you using any one of those particular terms more than the other? Yeah, I the think I'm, question,
0: I'm, so. yeah, that's a very good question. Yeah, I, I am prioritizing agape above the others. But I would see sort of eros, for instance, as longing, which is, I think... A, so I, I'm basically blanketing all of them together. I think longing is part of our being. Consummation, which is agape, would be... What would be the sort of where eros leads to? That's, that's and then the way that love is expressed through through the other um, other names for love, they would just be sort of other sort of degrees in a way of agape. Um, yeah. Earlier, you distinguished between
2: love and emotion.
0: Yes. And isn't eros the emotion? I think eros is probably accompanied by species. more emotion.
2: From that. Yeah. Um, like Marx spoke about an epiphenomenon. Yeah. If you think of a steam train going along the track, and you see lots of smoke, and the smoke is the epiphenomenon. It's, it's not the the driving force, and the emotion is like the smoke. It, it's not the driving. The engine is love. The, the emotion is like the smoke that
0: comes out. Of it. Although, as I understand it, eros is is uh, attributed to God in Revelation. Yeah, that could that. I mean, I, I, I would take that. i really
2: what you said about the yeah, yeah, which I think is more associated with, with eros. <coughs> yes, it, it's not
0: identical with it, but it's. That's very helpful. It's linked to it. Yes, I agree with that. I wouldn't say Eros and, and emotion are the same, but certainly. Yeah, the, but they are different. It's yeah. more linked
2: to Eros
1: than a God thing. Yes. This, the second question is you're talking about sin being classified and things like that. I just feel that sometimes one of the problems with that, as soon as we start classifying, that people then also start saying, But then I've sinned so much that I can't get into heaven. God can't forgive me. So we take away the. the can't. Um, yeah. and, and the issue That's there is, point. I mean, how would we feel, um, and, and again, very much on an agenda and, and a position, how would you feel if you got to heaven, the first person you met in heaven was Hitler or DJ Foster?
0: I would be astonished at the grace of God. <laughs> um, that he, he would rescue someone so despicable. Um, Paul refers to himself as the worst of sinners, so he sort of seems to have had some kind of understanding of degrees of, and he was, and I mean in some sense rightly so. He was a murderer. He had denigrated being in profoundly disturbing ways. And so I think he did understand that there are degrees to which you can fall. No no degree of sin is is in any way, in any way implicates God's redemptive capacity. If that is even the right terminology. God can redeem anything. And so so I think that it, it's, a, it's a very sad thing that people would say, I'm so sinful that I can't be rescued. Like, well, I suppose by a very weak God or a God that is, you know, indifferent to you, maybe that would be true. But that's not the sort of picture of God we get from the Bible or from the tradition. So, yeah, I would... I would stress not what we have done, because ultimately that is a form of egotism. I'd rather kind of want to de the self in some way, uh, point to what God has done, or is doing. That is, that is such a good question. Okay, so one of the things that I've been thinking about quite a lot is if you, if you take this idea that love is the affirmation of the goodness of being. Affirmation means to, to repeat in some sense. Um, and we are imitative beings. That's just how we're built. We just, and so, I mean, thanks to the mimetic theory thing as well. We repeat things. And this the sad thing is people who have been very badly treated tend to repeat uh, th- I mean, there's a, there's a statement, it's kind of an aphorism in culture, hurt people hurt people. Well, there is a tendency of people who have been hurt to just repeat the hurt, often in ironic ways, like they want to overcome it, but somehow just, just repeat it. This is why a lot of counter-movements are actually a- a counter to whatever the culture is. A lot of counter-culture movements begin by actually directly imitating the culture that they're opposing. Um, this is why a lot of uh, coup d'etats don't work, because the, they, they oppose the tyrant in order to become the tyrant, because that's actually just an imitation. Yeah, like we we can imitate what is bad. And this is why the call is always to look to Christ as a mediator. What that means is looking at Christ as the one who demonstrates how to not exact vengeance, even when vengeance is exacted on him, for instance. Um, This is why why, um, Christianity kind of moves past the lex talionis, the law of retaliation, into pure, like, forgiveness. Forgiveness is letting go. Forgiveness is actually ceasing to imitate what is evil. I mean, it's more than that, obviously, so, is it possible for someone to love well when they have been very badly hurt? Yes, but I think that takes grace and 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 actually a demonst- uh, like a very close attention to someone who is demonstrating how to love well. Okay. There are so many questions within our question. Um, okay, so some thoughts that uh, that come up for me when you mention all of these things. Okay, one of the, the common conceptions of the human psyche is that we are in control. So we choose everything, which is, it's just not true. Um, the human psyche is mostly driven by unconscious desires, motivations, etc. And I, I mean this sort of, in both the cognitive um, sense, cognitive unconscious, 95% of us is unconscious, as in there are processes happening that we're not aware of that make our choices possible, our conscious knowledge possible. But I also mean it in terms of the psychoanalytic unconscious. There, there are many things we are
1: we're unaware of,
0: motivations like so. You might think you're doing some, something unselfishly, but actually, the, deep down, that motivation is actually kind of selfish. My my basic stance on this is that you. You can actually basically only choose which direction to point your head. You can choose what to pay attention to. Because in paying attention to something, you become like that thing. This is actually one of the insights from the Psalms. Um, Those who worship idols become like them. That's what the, the one Psalm says. So there's this idea of actually being transformed into the likeness of what you worship. Hence the thing of worshiping God, because then you will be transformed more into the image of God. So there are, there's a lot going on that we don't have control over. I think we have far less freedom than we tend to think we do. But we do have freedom. We do have some freedom. And if we are attentive, if we choose what to pay attention to and then follow that up with choosing how to act within and being a, it's, a, it's about awareness, being aware of what we're paying attention to, we then have an option to actually choose the good, whatever that looks like. And by the way, we will get it wrong. We will perceive wrongly and choose something that we think is good and turns out not to be. That's part of being human. There, there is a sort of experimental process going on in, in everyday life. But I think it's important to recognize that we do have choices. Sins of omission, maybe just, there they are things, as you mentioned, like there are things that we just fail to do. Sometimes that is just because we're tapping into the desires of culture or a group of people we happen to hang out with a lot, sometimes it is willful, <coughs> in which case it is a willful movement away from the, the wholeness of being, that kind of thing. So, I don't know if that, like, that's a comment on, on some of the things you, you're mentioning. Just to comment what you, what you said, it's, uh, it's pretty obvious. The fact that
3: Christ said that if you already say fool to somebody, that's equivalent to murder. That's an illustration of
0: yeah. I think, I mean, one of the ways of reading that, I, I mean, exactly, it's that, is that if you, I've, um, if you take steps, if you say something like fool to someone, you are taking steps to away from the affirmation of the goodness of being. By the way, it doesn't mean that you affirm when beings do the wrong thing. It's obviously a distinction that needs to be made. Their being itself is good, what they're doing. Also, this is why you can love the sinner but hate the sin. It's a kind of important distinction to make. But that is a step along the way towards the denigration of being. Why tell the truth in simple situations? Because you train yourself to tell the truth in simple situations so that later when things get more complicated, you keep on telling the truth. You become, by saying the truth, by speaking the truth now, you become the sort of person who will speak the truth. By speaking the lie, by not affirming being through your speech, you actually become the sort of person who will keep on lying in whichever situation you're faced with. And so I think it's a uh, it's sometimes Jesus actually I mean in that um instance for me he he's talking about the the fundamental act but also about the process that you're about to walk on that is actually not going to end up uh being good for anyone. Just just thoughts. Yeah, great. Yeah, if you- Yes.
3: Two two different things. One was when we were living to Bishop Lawrence was talking who had complicated lives actually. Yeah. Um but what he was saying is that uh, no matter who it is your marriage, that marriage is linked to your salvation. Um, and I was putting that thought alongside always amazed me since we become orthodox when you listen to the, the, the main hymn of the wedding service, where the, the couple are, receive crowns, and the crowns are
2: joined together by a, a cord, And the, the, the service message is that your marriage is a kind of ring. Yes. God
3: is, is the other corner. Yeah. Um, but the wedding hymn refers to them as holy. Of um, that's interesting. That you know, if, if you see love as the martyr's love, yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's a much stronger thing than, than a feeling. Yeah, and yeah,
0: it,
3: it, nice. it's those a
0: things. Yeah, that's very nice. It also it kind of reminds me of just like a martyr is of course someone who proclaims, yes. who who so it's it's a and it's the person who who sets themselves aside, like, I'm going to set myself aside for this other person. It's not a victim. Yeah, not a victim. definitely. You know, uh, I
3: mean, in, in, in that sort of sense, it's, it's a sort of togetherness of, yeah. of and the idea
0: of being that you grow closer and closer to God by simply... And I'm just thinking of that in terms of what Bishop Lawrence has said Yeah, that's very nice. I, can I mention something that's interesting about martyrs and the where Jesus talks about rendering to Caesar... We have all ways, all sorts of ways, of how to interpret that. But the early Christians interpreted that as, when Caesar asks for your life, you give, you give your life, manta, you accept that, you accept your death. So you basically pay Caesar, but recognize that Caesar is actually also an image bearer, bears God's image, and ultimately your life belongs to God, not Caesar. So there's a way of both fulfilling the law and negating it at the same time, which I think is kind of cool. That was one of the ways that early Christians read that passage, sort of sidetrack, but interesting.
2: Steve. Can I add something to Please that? Please do,
0: yeah. A long time ago, when uh, the NAC government was introducing detention without trial,
2: one preacher, I won't mention the denomination, but uh, his sermon was on, should the church oppose the 90-day detention clause? And he said, no, because we should render unto Caesar the things of the Caesars, and unto God the things of the gods. And there was a group of us students from the university Argued with him afterwards, and he said, "I've got policemen in my congregation; they will put you in for ninety days." But the thing that I thought wrong with it is, they brought a coin to Jesus, and he said, "Whose image is on the coin?" But if you take a ninety-day detainee, whose image is on the detainee? Not Caesar. Not Caesar's. Yeah, that's very nice. That's very nice.
0: The church has been complicit throughout history in terrible things, and I think largely from just not paying attention to their own tradition, to their own theology, it's just appalling. And that that just sounds like, you know, everything belongs to Caesar, actually. That's what that that law sounds like. So. One of the, I'm, I'm going to mention this because it's a, it links to what you're saying, but it, um, people who are sort of Enneatype type twos on the Enneagram, um, their tendency will be to love others first. Te- that's their trend. Um, and it looks like unselfishness, but in loving others too quickly without actually fully recognizing their, the gift of their own being, they actually make the mistake of denigrating their own being. And it's not just any of type twos, but they're sort of like the the key example of how this plays out. And um, in other personality models, the, the quality of agreeableness is to take someone else's side before your own. And I think this is why it's so crucial that Jesus says, love others as you love yourself. It's so crucial to be aware of the givenness of your own being, the gift of it, and then to extend that love to others. Because then you are not loving out of a lack, a, th- a void that needs to be filled, but you're loving <coughs> some kind of abundance. Fullness. Full, the fullness of being, yeah. yeah. And sometimes, by the way, that does mean stepping away from acts of service and love to recover that so that you can be better equipped when you're faced with a... with. The difficult work of loving others it's it's really hard to do thank you everyone